This Slate spoiler special is meant to be played after you see the movie being discussed. The podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate spoiler special podcast on The Ides of March, the new George Clooney film directed by and semi-starring, I would say, supporting role, actually, uh, George Clooney as well. Um, here in the studio with me is Seth Coulter-Walls. Hey, Seth. I don't know. You are. I forgot to identify you last time. I just sort of went, but it was like you were like a one-namer, like Cher or something. But you are a, a writer for The Village Voice, for Slate on occasion. Where else are you publishing these days? Um, Washington Post and uh, The All, various places, different every week, Double XL. On music, month. on movies, on books, on your critic at large. Right. And, uh, and a good movie companion. Thanks a lot for coming to see The Ides of March with me last yeah, night. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So I want to recreate, to the extent possible, the exact conversation we had walking down Broadway to a Chinese restaurant after seeing this movie last night, because right. I, I really liked some of the points we were hitting, but I can't remember how it all started. I mean, first of all, just general reaction. I was a little bit disappointed in this movie. Yeah, I thought it you know, could potentially be better you know, than it was. It's strong. George Clooney is like a real director. He's not, it's not just a vanity project for him, right? He like, can turn in strong work and strong acting possibilities with Gosling and, and, and with Clooney also. But I think we both felt that it was actually frustrating on a couple of different levels, both structurally and performance-wise. Yeah, especially the last half or maybe the last quarter or so. It's a strange movie that pivots in this weird direction. This is why I'm really glad we're spoiling it, because I'm going to have to be all mysterious in my review and hinting about things that happen. And in right. fact, to really get at what doesn't work about this movie, you have to give away some plot points. Yeah, so do we want to do like a quick... Uh, yeah, let's do a quick summary, first of all. Okay, so this is a political thriller, I guess you would say. It's based on a play um, that, that I think the, the playwright, Bo Willimon, also collaborated on the screenplay with Clooney right. and with Grant Heslov, who wrote, who co-wrote um, Good Night and Good Luck with Clooney. Okay. And so they, they tried to open out this play, right, and turn it into, into a sort of realist movie as opposed to this very claustrophobic drama that it was on stage. It's the story of a Democratic presidential candidate played by Clooney. It's, it's still the primary, right? It's the eve of the primary election. I think it's about two weeks before the primary or yeah, something. Yeah, it's, it's in Ohio, and it's his, he's a governor. He's a sitting governor, Governor Morris. Right, but he's the governor of Pennsylvania, I yeah, think, right? But they're campaigning right. in Ohio. Right. He's running against a guy who's just very vaguely sketched, but who seems to be a little bit more to the left, a little bit more progressive than he is. It's also this kind of fantasy universe, by the way, very kind of unrealistic universe in which the Republican side is apparently completely beatable in right. this fictional election year. Right. So not all worth, that matters not worth, not is worth considering gets, or dramatizing. Right. There's not there's not even a sketch of sort of the political reality that obtains in in this movie. It's just this world in which if you get the Democratic nomination, you're pretty much a shoe in for president. Right. I think it's a sort of thinly veiled version of 2008 with an ex post facto gloss of like, you know, OK, so a charismatic Democrat is always going to beat some kind of like, you know, fractious Republican Party that doesn't have a really dynamic candidate. Right, right. Um, but which, which also comes through in the fact that Clooney's candidate has a Shepard Ferry style poster that you see exactly. everywhere in his campaign headquarters. So he's vaguely Obama-esque, but this movie is not terribly concerned with uh, parallels with political reality. Which is sort of, I think, one of the things that sort of constructually throw people because there is this like really decided kind of effort on the part of the filmmakers, especially at the beginning, to create this verisimilitude of like political reality. Like We have a series of, you know, CN, uh, principally MSNBC primetime hosts like Rachel Maddow or Chris Matthews like thrown into the mix like interviewing you know Paul Giamatti who's one of the campaign managers for this primary debate and it's all like meant to be in in, in various ways that are signaled you know really truthful and real except for it doesn't feel that way at all yeah you were saying that it really throws you to see these msnbc familiar faces playing themselves in movies yeah and the, well, i mean it's actually this happened in the matt damon movie that came out earlier this year the adjustment bureau there's you know this like 15 minute montage at the beginning of as many politicos as you could throw at it and it's strange because these people are terrible 
movie actors. You know, they can't even play themselves well. There's like this slight sense in which it doesn't even really feel like their shows. If you watch Chris Matthews do his show live and then you watch him playing himself on TV or in a movie, he's nowhere near as demonstrative. Is there Chris any Matthews chance like, that we can get a, a minute of your Chris Matthews impersonation here? Ha! Ha! <laughs> ha! Let me tell you! Hey! Let's tell Hey! Like, no! Let me ask you this! Ha! ha! Anyway. Yeah, the barking laugh. You've got the barking laugh down perfectly. Right. And he doesn't he doesn't let loose that way in, in, when he plays himself so in a sedate. movie. So sedate. And it's, and, it's, and it's confusing because you're, you're taken out of the movie. When I first recognized Rachel Maddow, I was like, oh, you know, Rachel Maddow's covering this. And I missed a key character name for a few moments. And was, anyway. But what's I think odd about this, not just that people don't play themselves as well as they are in real life, actually, which isn't, I don't think, a huge surprise. But when the movie deviates later from any kind of recognizable political reality or just baseline things about cynicism and politics and experience that were well, I think, inured to at this point, when the characters don't behave in ways that conform to how we think we know how political operatives work. It's that much more sort of shocking and, and strangely clashing. Yeah, it, it can't really make up its mind whether it wants to be a vague allegory, this gesturing at, at truths, tr- you know, transhistorical truths about politics, or to be some kind of a specific parable about what's happening in politics now. Right. But okay, so we have to get into to, to, to what happens to, to plot, this George right. Clooney guy. So he has two campaign managers, right? His head campaign manager is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman as this sort of, I don't know what real character you would com- compare him to, but he's a very K Street operative kind of guy, right? And, like, and, and battle, battle scarred and kind of, you know, real politics. Battle scarred, real politic, and and thoroughly inured to the whole campaign process, but extremely loyal, right? He's not a bad guy. He's not sort right. of shown as a, as a Karl Rovian evil figure. He's actually extremely loyal. In fact, his loyalty becomes a big plot point in his obsession with others' loyalty because right. he's kind of a paranoid. But he uh, he runs the campaign, and his very close right hand man, played by Ryan Gosling, character's right. name is Stephen, I think, who apparently doesn't work for the campaign per se, but works sort of as a consultant, which is you know structure just sort of weird like it wouldn't he wouldn't be the number two and not actually be on the campaign payroll but. yeah that's a point that seems important to him is that he works for paul he works for this character played by philip seymour hoffman right. and not not for the candidate but as the movie begins we're supposed to believe this some stuff about ryan gosling's character that to me not only seems implausible that such a person could exist but but makes his turn later in the movie completely implausible which is that essentially he's kind of a dewy-eyed idealist who truly truly believes in this candidate will stick by him through anything and essentially can't envision his career doing anything else but sort of getting this man into power so he can change the world right exactly and it's and it's strange too because he at the same time in the first act tells another i think it's a reporter i forget who, he's, who he says this to but he advertises of himself that he's worked on so many campaigns at this point in his life he's 30 but he's worked on more campaigns than most people who are in campaigns and are 40 years old which as a matter of math is somewhat you know strange because it's the same number of like electoral cycles in a year for everybody so it's, like, <laughs> right. it's actually sort of like one of these things that maybe people tell about themselves who are telling well he works on the dog catcher <laughs> campaign when in right, his Okay. No, I guess I wasn't factoring that in. But anyway, it's strange. And so, I mean, we're spoiling it. You know, there's this turn and he and he's not, a, you know, a favored member of the campaign anymore. He's pushed out and retaliates, you know, in a way that we'll get to. But he has to make this break with with his sincerity, as he's described it in the first act, which you would think would come much earlier in a professional political operative's life, especially one who was so working double time on as many campaigns as everybody else. Right. I mean, I think a movie that had more complex ideas to explore about politics than this one would explore the way in which you can be an idealist in your ultimate goals, you know, right. but in but in the short term, you know, in the means to the end, you have to be an operative. And I think that's probably the case with anyone who would rise that high in a campaign. I'm sure that all of Obama's right-hand men believed in him deeply, but that doesn't mean that they weren't, you know, utterly scurrilous in what they were willing to do to get him elected. Right. And the things that George Clooney cannot abide include giving a cabinet post to a senator 
Snyder with a key endorsement to give during the primary season. He just can't deal with this character played by Jeffrey Wright, who's another senator who, you know, apparently his views about the UN are so anathema to George Clooney's own that he cannot give him the chit that he needs in order to get all of his delegates and put the nomination out of reach for this other character. But that's not even the biggest twist, right? I mean, the biggest twist is that there's this young woman who's an intern on the campaign who is the daughter of the DNC chair. And played by Evan Rachel Wood, Played by say? Evan Rachel Wood, right. And she ends up coming on so strong to Ryan Gosling in one of the campaign office interior scenes. You know, she's like putting it all out there that she wants to, you know, have sex with him. And he kind of responds. There's there's actually, she actually does some good work in, in the movie. I, oh yeah, I love Evan Rachel Wood. I've always really liked good. her a lot. So even though there was this, you know, so she, there's actually a really funny moment where she's tying his tie in the bedroom and it goes on for a really long time. Did you remember that? Yeah, yeah, this is a sweet moment. It's and a really sweet moment. It's actually, and it's actually both sweet and funny and I thought one of the best performed pieces of the movie. But she's psyching him up to go into the office and sort of saying that they don't need to really talk about the fact that they just slept together the night before and that it's fine, you know, and that he doesn't have to worry about her. And then you you sort of have a subconscious sense that it's taking a long time for her to tie his tie, you know, in reverse in in front of him. And he says, you don't have no idea how to tie a tie, do you? And it's I think I thought that was like the funniest part of the movie. There's there's some stuff at the beginning that's just really setting up a movie that never happens. Like their relationship has a little bit of substance. And then as soon as the twist, which we'll get to, comes along, it's all emptied out. And so the the other uh, competition for Ryan Gosling that's going on, besides Evan Rachel Wood trying to land him in bed, which is relatively easy for her to do. Paul Giamatti, who plays the manager of the opponent's campaign, is also trying to seduce well, we think at first he's trying to seduce Ryan Gosling to work for his side. Right. So he has. They have this fateful meeting, a right. meeting that changes everything in a bar. In a bar, which uh, Ryan Gosling doesn't tell anyone about because he's essentially embarrassed to be meeting with the, uh, the the opposition. And after an initial attempt to poach him and get him to come and work for his side, um, Paul Giamatti then gives up and leaves him with the information that you want to spoil this point because I don't remember it exactly. I guess that Jeffrey Wright is about to The Jeffrey Wright's character candidate. is going to endorse the other candidate. But it's very complex in its way that I think actually sort of will flatter a lot of professional political operatives because it makes the notion of who is like, you know, two or three steps down from campaign manager is the most important political news of the world, right? This like whole sort of like very dense and almost like it sort of reminds me like the, in its complexity, like the way that a lot of these movies about very big issues like a traffic or like a Syriana try to make a virtue out of this sort of needless bureaucratic complexity. And that feels like that's like embedded in this plot a little bit. Like Paul Giamatti advertises to Philip Seymour Hoffman that he might one day want to steal somebody of Ryan Gosling's gifts. And then after sort of planting that seed, calls Gosling directly to have a sit down with him, all of which is his broad machination in order to make Philip Seymour Hoffman no longer trust Ryan Gosling so that Ryan Gosling gets pushed out of the George Clooney Right, campaign. so the meeting was just to have a meeting. It was, it was just so, it was that, it could, so, that, so that it could be To sow discord, leaked. right? right? And, and so I have to say that my favorite memory of the movie, maybe my tie moment, is, okay. that, is that gaze that Paul Giamatti and Philip Seymour Hoffman exchange from the wings as their two candidates are debating near the beginning. There's just this glare oh, of right. these two, like, angry, chubby operatives, right. you know, each, each sort of fiercely battening down on their side, and they just give each other this tight smile and this nod, and it's hilarious. No, that is a good moment. But, there, like, all of this complexity in terms of the plot sort of, I think, is in the service of like very little. Do you know what well, I mean? because because the key twist, and here's where here's where the plot pivots to this weird place, right? Is right. that dewy-eyed Ryan Gosling finds out by sleeping with the intern, the twenty year old intern, sleeping who's the with the intern, of the DNC chair answers her phone by mistake because they all have these campaign cell phones, right? And it turns out that it's Clooney's character. It's the candidate on right. the line. Here's a plot point: Why didn't he recognize his voice? Right? He talks to George Clooney a hundred times right. a day that on was, the phone. No, that's like not that reckoning does not happen until the third act. But it should have been something that was immediately recognizable, right? For for Clooney and for right <laughs> for for I mean. It, 
Also, the same thing is true of Gosling. He has to look at the phone to figure out. He has to call the number back. And then he says that somebody asked for her by name. Right. But he didn't recognize the guy who's on the cover of Time and the poster saying, let's be our next president, right? <laughs> it's strange. It seems like they, they would recognize day. each other's voices immediately. But okay, so then he discovers that she has also had at least one sexual encounter with the candidate. Which ends up needing a $900 abortion like as, as the follow-up plot point to it that, that she you know, can't ask her father for, the DNC chair, because they are Catholic. Another plot point that doesn't make sense to me, because why would he go into petty cash, which he does, the campaign petty cash, and actually letting some, some fellow campaign members know that he's going to get the petty cash for something that he won't reveal right. rather than just pay her out of his own pocket. I mean, $900 is $900. Surely he has, he's as, as number three, you know, as the David Axelrod of the campaign, right. he's making enough that he could just shut her up with his own money. Yeah, this is like another part of the sort of political verisimilitude that this movie is really fuzzy about. Like it's, you know, sometimes he's presented as somebody who's like a young, scrappy up and comer, you know, and doesn't have like a ton of money and will make money in the future when he becomes, you know, post White House lobbyist. But it ignores the fact that anybody at this like elite level in professional politics is already not worried about that type of month-to-month kind of petty cash thing. But at any rate, and and then and also that petty cash thing does not result in any kind of follow-up plot point, right? Yeah, like you're right. you, you. I remember you tensed up, but you were sort of like, I can't believe the stupidity of this. <laughs> yeah, this is, I was. Whispering. This is clearly the the house of cards upon which this Watergate will tumble. And then and you were like, Why is he doing the petty? And it's like, Man, eh, nothing happens with that. He it's got fine. away with that. <laughs> So he gives her the petty cash. She gets the abortion. He immediately breaks it off with her. And actually, I thought there was a good scene where he gets very icy with her and sort of says, like, you know, the campaign comes before you. Basically, you fucked up and, you know, take the money and get your abortion and get out of town. It's, it's pretty cold. But at the same time that he's so he takes Evan Rachel Wood to the abortion clinic, drops her off after he's been cold with her and says that he'll be there to pick her up when she's when she's ready to be ferried home. Right. Except for what happens in the interim. And, and this I thought was sort of strange at the time, too. Like, why not just stay? You know what I mean? Like, it's, like, weird to, like, double back and then go back, like, make two trips to the abortion clinic. Even from, like, but, but the reason that this happens, right, is because something has to happen to Ryan Gosling while Evan Mitchell Wood is having her abortion, which is that he gets pushed out of the George Clooney campaign as a result of his meeting with Paul Right. He basically Giamatti. has a screaming match with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman finds out that he's seen... Paul, Paul Giamatti, Giamatti yeah. and, and says you're off the campaign. And right. then in an interesting, at the time, actually, I thought this was kind of a cool way to handle it. It's, yeah, you, it was, in revealing, an ellipsis, what, it was, it was right? revealing what you were just saying. He doesn't have a screaming match on camera. Right. It's only, we're only told later that he freaks out. We right. We, we see him get told. We see him sort of, you know, silent and in horror that he's been kicked off this campaign that is his whole life. Right. And then we hear later in somebody else's voicemail message, oh, he, he completely went off on Philip Seymour Hoffman. And suddenly, here's the pivot. Okay, here's right. the pivot. Suddenly, Ryan Gosling, who's been this dewy-eyed, tender political idealist, becomes this this icy psychopath. He'll do anything to bring down not only Philip Seymour Hoffman, that would make sense, but to bring down his candidate. Right, right. It becomes like a samurai thing where he like sort of, you know, takes on this latitude of eyebrow that cannot be raised. No matter, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? It sort of like walks around like a steely. This makes me wish you'd seen Drive. You haven't seen Drive no, yet. No, no, yeah, yeah. Because it's sort of on a more macro scale, on a more coarsely handled scale, this is sort of what happens in Drive, where you, you can't decide whether his character is an, an evil psychopath or this gentle, kind of implacable, powerful man or okay. whatever. And uh, it, it, it happens in a, in a more granular way, in a way that makes more sense in Drive. And it's also just a more stylized movie that's sort of taking place on a different plane. Right. But in this movie, I just felt like the movie lost claim to all psychological realism at the moment he became political samurai dude. And he's not even convincing in that realm because he's so 
I mean, the, the performance and, and, and weirdly, I think the direction of all of this toward the end really loses all of the all of the bearings. Like at the moment when Ryan Gosling is triumphant, he successfully displaces Philip Seymour Hoffman as campaign head. By blackmailing George Clooney. By blackmailing the candidate that he wants to work for but no longer destroy now that he can destroy the person who fired him from the campaign in the first place. He doesn't project outwardly the type of joie de vivre as a political operative that we're told in the beginning is his is, is his media, what makes him work. You know, the New York Times journalist played by Minister Tomei, right, who tells him, you know, and also Paul Giamatti at the beginning tells him he's so successful because he's such a charmer. Which, which we see all through the first, I would say, relatively good three quarters of the movie. But then in the end, when he's when he's risen to the actual level of campaign manager, he's no longer within shouting distance of anybody's definition of charming. He's like, you know, so dour and kind of like kind of reptilian. Yeah. And at the very end, like, you know, blowing past people and kind of like giving these like, you know, little kiss offs at the end of every scene to everybody, you know, and just becoming kind of like, you know, a straightforwardly like remarkable asshole. And at the very end of the movie, he's sitting as you know, it's it's, it's essentially we're sort of suggested that it's a fait accompli that now Clooney will win. He's taken the endorsement. He got the delegates. He got the delegates. He actually made the guy that he wouldn't make Secretary of State. He put Jeffrey Wright on his ticket as his VP. So we're supposed to know that it's all going to happen. And they're doing one of these cutaways in a, in a gymnasium, and it's John King from CNN being piped over Ryan Gosling's earpiece, like over uh, his IFB, and he's saying. You know, now we go to campaign manager, you know, Ryan Gosling. And it's a video feed. There's a, there's a CNN, like, camera in front of Ryan Gosling. And he looks like, you know, a prophet of doom. He doesn't look like a smiling campaign manager. And that's manager. the last shot of the movie, right? So it's so it's so Steven, weird. Steven so-and-so, campaign manager. Right. What do you have to say? Oh, and I know the question, you're, you're the the question win- is, you're the winner. tell like, us how this happened. How did you win Ohio? Right. And, and if he's really as reptilian and sort of, like, you know, uh, become accustomed to cynicism as we're led to expect his character has become, he's at this point. Really, I mean, I think the only response is that, you know, he would, if he's on TV, he'd be smiling and being like, well, this is a result of a lot of hard work. And that, and would, that be, would be a more powerful ending. That would even be just more cynical, right? But this movie doesn't quite have the courage of its, of its attempt to be dark, which I, which I think was both of our... Like, well, it also just implies that he's a really ineffectual campaign manager at that point. Like, <laughs> right. you don't want your campaign manager to stare icily into the camera. You want him to, to yeah. chirp something in your favor. Right. Or, or, or else it's the other direction, right? Like, it's like that's his moment of break with, like, you know, reality where he becomes like, you know, where he where he goes Bullworth, potentially, right? Where he's like, you know, this is all messed up or whatever. But just like, this is a weird middle ground that doesn't have any particular kind of bite or truth to it. I also felt that the scene where he, this is a very weak point in the movie, and, and maybe the, the lowest point of the pivot of the end, is when he meets up with George Clooney in that, um, in that <laughs> restaurant kitchen and where, basically where, blackmails him. This is a scene that he shows up and says, look, make me your campaign manager. Make me the new Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right. Or else I go public with all this stuff about the abortion. And we didn't even mention big spo- the biggest spoiler of all, and I think this is something interpolated from the into the movie that's not in the play that Evan Rachel Wood kills herself when she realizes when she's not picked up at the abortion clinic and has to take a cab back to the hotel that's she, a crappy day yeah, that's a very she, crappy day she gets a voicemail from the sort of cherubic number five who's going to briefly be vaulted up to the number two position under Philip Seymour Hoffman until it's the case that Ryan Gosling successfully blackmails George Clooney she gets this succession of voicemails where she's learning that Gosling was fired. And the whole thing went down Gosling's while she gonna, was in the Gosling, clinic, right? Gosling's going to take revenge on the campaign, and she intuits correctly that his ammo is related to her pregnancy and her and her dalliance with George Clooney. And then it's just sort of like out of nowhere, she takes a bunch of pills and drinks, and you know, it's, we're led to believe she commits suicide as a sort of way of preventing shame from descending upon the entire... And she leaves a voicemail also for Ryan Gosling. But this is also a central problem, is that way too much emotional information in the movie is either hidden from us, 
via like these, you know, ellipses or cuts or like when George Clooney fires Philip Seymour Hoffman, it's all like, you know, he's asked to walk inside of a van and then the camera just lingers in medium shot outside the van for about 45 seconds and then Philip Seymour Hoffman walks out. Unlike you, I kind of like that ellipsis. In fact, I liked the ellipses in general. I think he over, he leaned too much on that point. I think he probably saw some cool European movie that had important emotional moments alighted and he thought, I'm going to elide my emotional Uh, moments. And so he wrote it a little bit too hard, but I bet I liked some of those. Well, I mean, I think they would have been fine if it, and I guess my diagnosis is I thought they were, you know, maybe cool rhythmically like the first time I saw them. But then when I realized I didn't know why characters were doing things in the third act. The one that doesn't make any sense is that we don't see Ryan Gosling's turn. But I don't know that it would be possible to dramatize that effectively since it makes no sense. Well, well, right. I mean, so it ends up feeling more like a cheat, like these stylish ellipses that are executed here for for the sake of like sort of emotional like restraint and kind of coolness end up, I think, really structurally hampering the movie to a point where we can't imagine how Ryan Gosling would have pivoted in that scene where he got fired from the sort of like slightly disbelieving, sarcastic guy. It's like you need a CGI Hulk kind of moment. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't, I mean, so anyway, yeah. But I mean, for all that we're kind of like crapping all over this movie, (laughs) I actually, scene by scene and and minute by minute, pretty much enjoyed it, although there was significant eye rolling in the last quarter. I mean, I wouldn't say people should flock to see it, but if if you like your Clooney and your Gosling and your sort of sort of semi-smart but not as smart as it thinks it is political thriller it's not the worst yeah if you, yeah, that's that's such damnation by fact <laughs> if you like you're dumb slightly disbelieving in its own smartness then this is the movie for you well i, I prefer this movie but a movie like quiz show right robert redford's uh-huh. quiz show not quite the smart as smart a movie as it thinks it is right. totally pleasurable to watch unfold in the moment yeah it's pretty i think it's pretty pleasurable everybody's you know like in terms of like the limitations of the script and, and everything, they do a good job inhabiting what's there on the page. Yeah. But I think that the kind of you know Oscar level recognition that this movie is clamoring for, I don't think it will get, and I don't think it should get. Although maybe some of the smaller roles, Philip Seymour Hoffman's always great, and Paul Giamatti so so funny in a very small role as as a very Carl Rovian dude. Yeah, no, I mean I think the sporting stuff was all was all really fun to watch, and I mean. It's almost impossible, I think, to, to put Giamatti or, or, or Philip Seymour Hoffman in, on screen and not have them, you know, do something interesting with it. Can I also recommend? We don't usually endorse things during <laughs> during spoilers, but uh-huh. I'm also thinking of the the Robert Altman TV series Tanner '88, which is just like one of the greatest representations of a campaign. Did you ever see yeah, that, yeah, that I did. show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually saw that DVD in your house, and I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wrote on it because there was a, like a 20 years after revisitation or something like that that, right. that Altman did, but it's completely worth catching up with. And, and actually, I think a lot about, you know, um, about various machinations that happen in that show when I see real-life things unfolding huh. in the campaign, whereas I don't think that this movie is going to change the way I think about anything that happens in the 2012 campaign. Well, strangely, I don't think it's even meant to. Like, I think all of this drapery of, like, seriousness and sophistication is just, like, seriously window dressing. Yeah, the like, idea that they're selling essentially is something that, you know— we could come to independent of any political reality, which is just something about compromise and politics drags us all down in the end. Right. Or, or just like, you know, powers, you know, power corrupts tough, or, you know, power is a tough thing to, to grab, grab hold of. You know, right. Like. All right. Well, next time I'll take you to a better one. I okay. promise. Thanks. Well, you obviously know ahead of time which movies are going to be good and which movies are going to be bad, right? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. my intuition. I can trust it okay. every time except on this one. <laughs> Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.